Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bree, uh, and I'm on staff here at St. Pete's, and I'm really excited to open um, Hebrews with you again today. Uh, so a couple years ago, um, I watched this movie about the war uh, in Sudan that took place during the late 80s. And the movie told the story of children refugees, and it opened with a scene of two brothers. Uh, they were out watching the cattle that belonged to their tribe. And to pass the time and the boredom, they played this game. One of the boys traced a rectangle in the dirt and sank his hand into it, saying the words, our first grandfather was Madding. Then his brother would put his hand in the dirt and say, then Majok, and they would proceed this way, back and forth, recounting the names of their grandfather, their great-grandfather, and so on. Then Atam, then Dang, then Agong, they would chant. Now, I'm not completely certain how one would win at this kind of game, um, but it had something to do with being able to remember ancestors' names in, succes in succession and quickly without making a mistake. The boy who lost, lost by accidentally skipping a generation to much taunting from his brother. But in the film, after these boys have been orphaned and have to walk almost 1,000 miles as refugees, this becomes the way that they push themselves to survive. They would chant as they walked. Our first grandfather was Madding, then Majok, and so on, and so on. Five or six generations back, they would recite between themselves. I have to admit to you that I only know the name of maybe one of my great-grandfathers. And I'd venture that even those of you who can recite more of your family lineage probably weren't doing so as a child, eight or 10 years old. But for most other cultures in the world, certainly for the original audience to the book of Hebrews, family lineage is everything. Your heritage, where you come from, who you belong to, is not only a matter of pride, but of sheer survival. In Hebrews today, um, we picked up at chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the author-pastor's impressive retelling of Jewish history and heritage. Uh, the history that the original audience and believers in Jesus would have known like the back of their hands. Before Easter, we got through part of chapter 11. The last week, um, Alistair began the exciting climax of Hebrews that dawns at chapter 12. So our part today is to fill in the gap. And our question, my question for this part of Hebrews, is why would the author, in order to gain the momentum he or she needs for the staggering peak of Hebrews that we know is coming in chapter 12, why would the author start a history lesson here of all places? I think a large part of the answer to that question can be found in the way the author tells history. So what we'll explore today is um, an inspiring history lesson that ultimately says Jesus is better. So in chapter 11, um, the author opened by talking about faith and giving a definition for it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, from Hebrews 11, chapter, or verse 1. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Then he begins a list of by faiths. By faith, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that. By faith, or faithfully, this is how our ancestors lived. This is what propelled them forward. And by faith is the adverb the author uses to describe their actions. He starts with the very genesis of the people, uh, with individuals, ancients like Abel and Noah, 
Then he delves into the story of Abraham and traces the baton of faith until it reaches Moses. And today we pick up in the final um, portion of this impressive roll call. At the place of our reading today, though, the author does something different and takes a sharp turn from talking about individuals, he just finished talking about Moses, and zooms out. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. In these last by faith, the author recalls the Exodus journey, on which so much of Jewish history hinges, the great deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and a natural progression for the author, um, going from talking about the founders of God's people, primarily Abraham and Moses, to their corporate formation as the delivered people of God. At the Exodus, a people who had always only ever been uh, nomads, slaves, or refugees, were on the edge of having place, being given home. And this all came to pass due to the direct power of God initiated on their behalf, which the author highlights by no longer talking about individuals, but instead these faiths are about God's breathtaking actions that the wider people as a whole see. But what's most fascinating um, about this turn of the chapter and what would leap off the pages to the original audience where they hear today is how this list of Israel's heroes, those who trusted God and saw his mighty acts, is concluded. Look at how the author chooses to finish his sweeping history, how he clinches the list, finalizing his exemplars of the faith. The author keeps us from passing over her by taking us from corporate expression of faith, magnificent large-scale demonstrations of God's power, and then wrenching us back to the single private individual. And she is Rahab, the prostitute. With his final by faith, he writes, by faith, Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with those who disobeyed because she welcomed the spies with peace. Um, Gareth Cockrell, in his commentary on Hebrews, states that it is here the author makes perhaps his clearest and most powerful example of one who lives by faith. If his hearers will just imitate Rahab's faith, he will ask no more. Rahab is mentioned with warrant only to her faith, no new miracles introduced here. So it forces us to ask the question, how does Rahab of all people, a woman, a Gentile, and a prostitute, exemplify the exact kind of faith the author has been talking about this whole time in a way that makes her the most appropriate conclusion to this list? A list in which she is the only woman besides Sarah, Abraham is her husband, and the anonymous group of women, of women in verse 35 to be mentioned. So since Rahab uh, is so important to understanding this history, we need to look a little closer at her story. So after the Exodus, the people of God are camped out in the wilderness because since they've left Egypt, they haven't actually been very faithful to the God who rescued them out of slavery. And so God hasn't yet gifted them with land or set up the society with them that he had promised. Instead, he's going to do that with the next generation. And this is what Joshua, Moses' Moses' successor is gearing up for in the Old Testament reading we had today. Joshua's got these two young men he's going to use as spies. Um, they have never lived in a society apart from their refugee camp in the middle of nowhere. Um, and Joshua's going to send them into Jericho, a buzzing and intimidating powerhouse of a metropolis. He sends them in as spies to scout out the city that their God has promised to give them uh, in military conquest. Neither of these men have ever seen Egypt or Jericho, or any city for that matter. 
They know nothing but the tents their parents left them. Even their God dwells in a tent, the makeshift temple that they've had pitched in the desert. So these are the guys who leave their camp and find their way to the center of this seductive city and to a brothel of some sort. This is where we meet Rahab. We are not told why these young men are at her house slash brothel, but essentially we find out very quickly that whatever their reason, they are not very good spies because the king of Jericho had no trouble discovering and locating them on their very first night in the city and so sends for them. But Rahab, this prostitute turned spy and God-fearer, intervenes and she saves their lives. In this story, we've probably feared the worst for the spies so far, probably something like moral corruption in the big bad city, we're now being murdered at the hands of this pagan king. And yet it is precisely here we meet the moral hero of the story. All the declarations of faith, the grand sweeping affirmations of trust in Israel's God on this pagan prostitute's lips, not the lips of the fresh-faced and clumsy Israelite spies. That definition of faith at the beginning of chapter 11 is a definition of faith operating in the arena of the unseen. Faith is the reality of things unseen, the evidence of things hoped for. Rahab has never seen anything of this God, yet she calls him the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she is dead sure that he is going to gift his people with land something that the Israelites themselves out in the wilderness are having a really hard time believing and are not overly certain about. And so after saving these men's lives, she makes a request of them. She asks, Now then, please swear to me by your God, let my household be saved alive and their lives be delivered from death. The eager and solemn response of the spies is that they will do just that in return for all that she has done for them. And a few chapters later, before Jericho is destroyed, they do indeed take Rahab and her parents and brothers and sisters and all their families with them and take them and put them outside the camp of Israel before rushing off to finish the conquest of the city. So Rahab identifies with the people of God by practicing the peace that is expected of Israel's common life. She is an outsider who demonstrates her faith by flinging herself and her family with her on the promises of God, on the unseen, on the hoped for. And she and her household are saved. Now this theme of household should kind of stick out to us at this point in the book of Hebrews. Um, it's been important to the author before. We saw it come up in chapters 2 and 3 where the author describes Jesus' life and his suffering and experience of death as this incredible solidarity with humanity. In being human, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And the exalted and worshiped Jesus, the one who now receives glory and honor, is also the brother who knows our frailty. The author says, we, those who look to Jesus, are God's house if we hold on to believing him. And Jesus is a very special leader of a household. Jesus ushers the family, the house that he has saved, into God's presence. The language of household in Hebrews is the language of saving, and it is the language of belonging. And it comes up all through chapter 11, too. Faith is for drawing near to God. Faith is why Noah's household is saved. Faith is why Sarah knows that she'll have a big family with lots of grandchildren, even though she'll never see it. And why Joseph knows that his family won't always live in Egypt. And why Moses chooses to leave the royal Egyptian life behind. 
Chapter 11 says that these people were exiles, but were seeking homeland, not looking to go back to where they came from. You see, we need to remember that what the author of Hebrews is most concerned about for his hearers is not that they stop following Jesus out of fear of death. Remember, they are a persecuted early church. But that they might fall away because of fear of total marginalization and rejection from their society, their families, and ultimately from their own people. We see so in the verses right after Rahab, recounting lives of faithful outcasts and persecuted Jews and Christians. For a first century person, to be excluded from your people is a fate worse than death. And this is exactly the case for the audience of Hebrews. They are following by faith a Messiah, believing in something unseen and hoped for that their people utterly reject, intellectually and in practice. In following Jesus, they are as good as dead. A clean break is made with social status, job security, sure futures, and a place in their own families. Um, the civil rights leader and Congressman John Lewis was only 25 years old when he helped organize and lead the famous um, civil rights marches from Selma to Montgomery for the right to vote. During the first march, led primarily by Amelia Boynton, state troopers and county posseman attacked the unarmed marchers and law enforcement beat Boynton unconscious, making that day go down in history as Bloody Sunday. John Lewis says that on the next and successful um, attempt at the march, he had in his backpack an apple, an orange, toothpaste, and toothbrush, and two books because he thought he was going to be arrested. They all did. At a certain point on the bridge where the brutality and confrontation from the previous attempt had happened, he says he saw death. When asked, what does that feel like? He says, I thought I was going to die. It was something, some force that was just pushing us on. Sometimes you have to be inspired and lifted up by what I call the, his, uh, the spirit of history. We'd been told not to be afraid, but be determined. The, Hebrew, the hearers of Hebrews flailing in their faith in believing Jesus need to be lifted up by the spirit of history. But more than that, the author is not only seeking to inspire them with history, he's using history to make a very important, a crucial point. In chapter 12, what Alistair so beautifully opened for us last week, the author writes, Therefore, with the force of history behind us, let us look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. By building momentum with this roll call of witnesses to God's power, and then taking all of that momentum and fixating on Jesus, our author is essentially saying, these other family members of God's house, they are your family, and they are guarantors of God's promises, proof that he does what he says. But Jesus, the head of God's household, is not merely like all of these great heroes of history, but he brings their history to completion in fulfilling all the things they believed in about God. And he trailblazes a faithfulness that blows these other great demonstrations of God's reality out of the water. Our author is making the airtight case that Jesus is better. The witnesses in history demonstrate the reality of God, but Jesus is in reality God himself, the inversion of creation, the invisible made visible, unseen, now seen. 
Jesus is better because he has spoken the things of God better than any awe-inspiring, faithful Jewish ancient. Jesus is the one who tasted death and death was destroyed. He is the vindication of righteousness, destroying the power of murder from Abel right down to the martyrs. Finally, Jesus is better because Jesus is the one who pioneered a path right to the very presence of God and in doing so unleashed God's presence in the world. Rahab and these other heroes, this crazy ancestry, they're great, but in the end they don't compare, not next to Jesus. My friend Brooke puts it this way, the genealogy of the faithful in Hebrews looks like peanuts beside Jesus. The great um, poet, singer, writer, dancer, actress, and director, Maya Angelou, tells the story of a time when she was on set for a project, um, and there was a young man who was always in a confrontation with one person or another. She says he was cursing so you could see the blue come out of his mouth. At the time, um, there was a lot of tension in the air because the LA riots had just broken out. And at a certain point, one of these confrontations looked like it would turn into a fight. So Maya Angelou called the young man to her and asked if she might speak to him. And he cut her off in his anger several times at first, but she just said, I understand. And she asked him, when was the last time anyone told you how important you are? She said, you're the best we have. We need you desperately. Do you know that our people stood on auction blocks for you? Did you know that we got up before sunrise and slept after sunset so that you could stay alive? You could be here this day? And she wrapped her arm around him and walked him away. She said, I just talked to him about our people. And then she shielded him from onlookers when he began to cry. And that young man was actually Tupac Shakur, and she had no idea who she was talking to at the time. Uh, my point is this, that the author of Hebrews knows that this dear and desperately scared church needs to hear about their people. But more than that, they need to hear about their person, Jesus, who has said to them, you're the best we have. All this momentum, all this history, the sleeplessness, the futility, all of it for you, so that you too could belong, so that you too could be saved alive into things hoped for, so that your eyes too could see the unseen. I don't think that the author is frustrated with them for being discouraged. But he longs for them to realize, to fully comprehend all that they have in Jesus. And I'm warning them against falling away from Jesus. He is begging them, don't go running back to the cities, the families, the things you used to look to for security. Because by doing so, you actually leave the household of God. Instead, go to Jesus, the one who knows better than you, better than anyone, what it is to be kicked out. Those other things were only an illusion, as tangible as they seemed. And if you are pushed out of them, look to Jesus, fixate on him, because where he is, you will be. And you are his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of a household where outsiders are always welcomed. People like Rahab, who honestly probably felt like a bit of an outsider for the rest of her life, even though she ended up in the lineage of Jesus himself. I know that we most likely haven't had to watch people we love die for their faith, that we most likely don't know what it is to be kicked out of our homes or families for following Jesus. But I also know that if my own experience is any indication of yours, 
You have experienced crippling doubt and disbelief that threatens to choke out your faithfulness and send you running back to the things that you used to look to for security, probably find, more, probably find easier or more comfortable. But this is what Hebrews is asking us to trust, that Jesus' rule and reality is more sure, more secure than anything else, whether you can always see it or not. Um, the first time I preached this sermon was almost two years ago, right before I was preparing to move to BC. And when I said um, goodbye to my grandma, she hugged me fiercely, as she does, and said to me, I hope you find what you're looking for. And I've thought about that when I've worked through Hebrews. I know that it feels like a long shot that we're all looking for Jesus. But I also know that looking to other things usually disappoints. These heroes of faithfulness, their lives as remarkable as they were, weren't complete without Jesus. So it's all well and good to recite your family history as you press on. You need to, to know that God is faithful and trustworthy. But how much better to have someone with you, clearing the very path before you now, seeing to your every need, saying, you belong with me. How much better to have someone who knows all about everything you are going through and has already pushed through it in order to secure your future. We look to Jesus in order to see the very present activity of God in the world through him. And our faithfulness is strengthened so that we might experience his power ourselves now in knowing how great is his faithfulness.